Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Americans watching the footy. We are Americans and we do watch the footy, except when I fall asleep and miss the end of one of the best finishes, not just of the year, but maybe of all time. I'm Benjamin Castle back in Berkeley, California for the end of my school year, my last year in college. That's crazy to say that. And yeah, Ethan fell asleep for showdown. I am recording this one from a different location, Chandler, Arizona, one of the suburbs of Phoenix, I am at spring training, which is basically the baseball preseason. For those of you that aren't familiar, it's like a whole vacation experience. It's really fun, very laid back. Everyone has a good time. But after going to two games every day, you get a little worn out. And I was pretty worn out the early hours of Friday morning and fell asleep late in the third quarter of Showdown after watching Essendon against Melbourne in full. And then I woke up the next day and had to go back and see the end of it. And it it would have been worth staying up for and reacting to in real time because that was that was an all-time classic. That's much better than the last after the Siren game I slept through. I am very, very glad that I didn't end up spoiling it for Ethan. He wasn't responding to some of my texts. And after a while, I realized, wait a minute, he's probably fallen asleep. And so the last thing I said to him was, don't tell me you fell asleep. Well, I did. And I went back and watched and I knew it was going to be a crazy finish. And it was just a matter of how it all unfolded. So, yeah, it's been a great time. But, yeah, the only casualty really was not getting to see the end of Showdown live which we'll talk about in full as we get into things. Just a quick preview here. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk pretty extensively about Geelong's crazy fourth quarter. Probably going to rip on the West Coast Eagles. I'll leave that mostly to you. And we'll be breaking out once again the legitometer, the are you screwdometer, and something new we call the aloe black test. But we don't want to waste any more time because our breakdowns get pretty extensive. So let's start this thing off. Thursday night footy which only lasts for another round or two after this, but we've got the Western Bulldogs beating Sydney by 11. Bulldogs couldn't kick straight, but they held on late. They kicked 9-17-71 to Sydney's 9-6-60. Take it from here, Benjamin. Tell me what you saw. Well, the Swans passed the eye test early, and Patty McCartan picking up where he left off last round certainly helped with that. But despite that, they were down 13-3 to early, and then the Bulldogs took over after a few minutes. But... They largely couldn't capitalize on the scoreboard, which is the only thing that really kept it close because I really thought the Bulldogs outplayed them aside from those first few minutes. One of the common themes that we saw in this round was a team not kicking well, having a chance to pull away, failing to, and then 
either having to hold on late or failing to hold on. And it's just pretty simply when you've got a dominant stretch, like a second quarter where they completely shut Sydney out and had eight scoring kicks to the Swans zero, you've got to do more than kick one seven in that stretch. And they nearly regretted it. The Swans got into the lead, got it down to 11 a couple times in the third, and then got it all the way down to five with about a minute left before the Bulldogs finally put this one away. One thing that surprised me about this matchup was how well Tim English did overall. I thought that in general, I thought despite English's height advantage over Tom Hickey, that Hickey would have the better of the matchup. I just thought that Hickey was moving better in the first couple rounds. Even though the hitouts were 35 to 30 for Sydney overall, English did more all over the ground. 24 disposals, eight marks, including the spectacular one over Buddy. Which we'll get to later is one of the Mark of the Week nominees. Five tackles and 28 hitouts. And then Tom Hickey went down. And it's a serious one because it was a right MCL injury that is keeping him out for six weeks. So welcome to the lineup, Joel Amarty. He performed admirably considering the situation, but he's not Tom Hickey. Amarty ended up being the only swan ruck for the rest of the contest. And it's a good thing that Pete Laddams is ready to come back after a couple of nice outings in the VFL to relieve Hickey. The biggest takeaway that I had of this game by far was how nice it was to have fluff ball back. Mitch Wallace came on as the injury replacement and did quite well. Finished with one goal and one behind. After basically getting no time last year and what turned out to be a great season for the Bulldogs, I'm very happy for him to get back in there, regardless of the circumstances. And, you know, this was a must win for the Bulldogs, even though it wasn't their prettiest game. That second quarter would have been clinical if they could have kicked straight. For the Swans, you know, they just looked awful in that second quarter. But after that, ended up really putting it together, making it a game again. And I think this is not a terrible loss if you're Sydney. You know, from a standings perspective, you didn't get killed on the percentage because you ended up only losing by 11 despite playing pretty poorly for most of the first half. I think they did all right with things considering the circumstances, short week and all. And despite the outcome, I thought Nick Blakey was phenomenal. He, against Geelong, had a very quietly excellent game. This time, it was much less quiet. Finished with 25 disposals, eight marks, couple of tackles. I think he's becoming one of Sydney's best defenders, and I think it's becoming more and more apparent every week, and it's pretty neat to watch that. This was more of the effort that I expected from Isaac Heaney. He wasn't as much the focus for the Swans the first two weeks, but very solid despite just 18 disposals, a goal factored in a lot with their forward half progress in the second half. Meanwhile, for the Bulldogs of the midfield, Dunkley, Hunter, Bazlenka were all everywhere. And Bontempelli wasn't really as prominent as those three for most of the contest, but he had his moments late. He had a huge spoil in the final few minutes to force behind. And then off of an excellent half minute from Tom Lupertore, Bont ended up being the one to finish it. So he reminded us all of the player that he can be even when his ankle isn't still 100%. And he might have been dealing with some shoulder pain as well from a collision, but didn't show in those final few minutes. Cody Waitman ended up with three goals despite some pretty bad misses on a night where nobody on the dogs could really kick straight. So they needed that from him, and he could definitely be an impact player moving forward. And remember, 
they're still going to be playing for a while without Josh Bruce. They're going to have to figure out who can kick accurately. And Waitman could be that answer, but the 3-0 he kicked doesn't include the share of chances that he kind of whiffed on. They managed to get it done anyway. I am a little bit concerned with how physical that game was, what the Bulldogs injury report could look like heading into round four against Richmond. If so, this could end up being a pretty pyrrhic victory for them. We brought out the RU screwdometer for the Bulldogs last week, but that was just because they had started 0-2 after making the finals. It's clear that they're a legitimate side, and they should be for these next few years. The question is, how much can they be legitimate right now between the potential injuries that are looming for them and also whether or not they can kick straight? So from the indoor comfort of Marvel Stadium, we go to Friday night footy on a windy night at the G, where there were some more kicking accuracy issues, but in the end, Melbourne came home by 29 points. Melbourne 14-15-99, defeating Essendon 10-10-70. I really think the story of this one was Sam Wiedemann, a late replacement for Ben Brown, who entered COVID protocol and ended up with four goals. It's kind of a great predicament to have when... You have so many players firing on all cylinders that the list manager has a hard time figuring out who to actually leave out. And it's also impressive for Melbourne to do what they did despite Christian Petrocca being limited by Andrew McGrath. Crazy to think that we're saying this was a quieter die for Petrocca when he still had 21 disposals and kicked one too. But other players stepped up, especially Angus Brayshaw. What a game he had became just the 18th player in VFL-AFL history to take 20 marks in a game. He also had 34 disposals. Interestingly, though, just four of those were contested. And also Clayton Oliver with another very active night, 38 disposals for him, 18 of those contested, along with eight clearances, 15 inside 50s and nine score involvements. So the Melbourne midfield is more than fine, even when one of them gets tagged. Peter Wright with four goals for the Bombers and Tex Wanganin got the first of his career. I think Essendon's building up slowly to the point where they could end up getting to where they want to be. And if you told me they were going to be 0-3 at this point, I don't think there would have been a lot of concern. It would have been just a matter of how they looked in doing so, because look at the schedule to start the year. You're facing three teams that were in the top four last year. That's about as grueling as it gets. They even took the lead on a couple of Jake Stringer goals in the third. But to do that, they had to expend a lot after getting off to a pretty lousy start where they could have fallen behind by way more. But like the Bulldogs night before, Melbourne wasn't kicking very straight at that point. The wind was a major factor there. So they have an excuse, whereas the dogs were just in a dome. Then Wiedemann fired back to put the demons in front. Petraka scored again. And the two guys who really impressed me were obviously McGrath. And also Tom Sparrow. I thought Tom Sparrow had a terrific game, even though he ended up with just 14 disposals. I thought he was excellent. He made a lot of really heads up plays, just a really smart performer. And I really liked what I saw out of him. Also, Ed Langdon, the goal that might have sealed it, put him up by 17. And then Fritch added one more to really put it away. But Langdon's goal was goal of the week candidate could end up being seen a lot this year. It was a pretty ridiculous shot that I thought there was no way it was going in. Max Gone can't believe Ed Langdon meant it. And honestly, neither do I. It was actually another pretty quiet game from Gone, which his 101 fantasy points would not tell you. He and Luke Jackson lost the hit out battle to Sam Draper and Andrew Phillips. Gone went back into the ruck more this time, which was 
I guess, somewhat expected after just how much time Jackson took in round two. Maybe they were figuring, all right, save backs up for this round or something with a better matchup. The Bombers did a nice job shutting down the big ruck combo, and Draper, remember just how bad he was against Geelong. He's been a lot better since then and deserves a lot of credit for doing so. He's been quietly really solid over the last couple of games. Heading into this contest, I was happy to see that Ben Rudden had decided to drop Devin Smith after an unproductive first two rounds. He did keep Dyson Heppel on the side, and Heppel did have 22 possessions, though only two of those contested. So, wondering the long run, just how much he's going to want to stick with him, despite really a lack of impact in the possessions that matter. Darcy Parrish did somewhat make up for that. He really seems to be the leader of this Essendon team from the midfield, and honestly, he ought to be the captain and not Heppel. That said, Melbourne's defense did a good job not caving in. When Stringer got those back-to-back goals early in the third, you thought things could have really shifted, but May and Bowie both with really solid games. Bowie has appeared in 10 games, and the Demons have won all of them. 18 disposals, 5 score involvements, 5 intercepts, and Stephen May with another 22 disposals and 5 intercepts. They're just consistent. They're not very flashy. You got to appreciate the finer details of the game to understand what they're doing. The casual new observer may not quite see them unless they know what to look for. But those are a couple of really solid players that made the Demons what they are. Melbourne starts 3-0 after winning the flag. Essendon drops to 0-3 for the second time ever after 1967. Like the Bulldogs, we brought out the Are You Screwdometer for the Bombers last round, and despite them starting 0-3, we're not going to bring it out again because as much as these first three defeats have stung, it's these next three games for them that are going to be the proving ground. They are all at home. Round four versus Adelaide at Marvel. Round five at Marvel again against Frio, and then Anzac Day at the G versus Collingwood. I think we're going to have a much better idea of who the Bombers are this season after that, especially when you're potentially looking at a couple returns from injury. Most importantly, who made his competitive return this week with some VFL action. And now the one where I fell asleep. Adelaide Showdown 51. Going to go down as one of the greatest games, not just in Adelaide Showdown history, but maybe in AFL history, considering after the siren rivalry game. Can't ask for much more than that. I mean, you could have asked for me to stay awake during it, but as I said, I was pretty wiped out, and it was about four-ish in the morning when I fell asleep, something in the between 4 to 4.15 range, I would think. Other than a few early minutes, this looked like Port Adelaide's game the whole way. At what point did you think Adelaide was going to win this game? The first time I thought the Crows had a chance was when Travis Boak missed to the left with a minute 36 to go. That was after Josh Rochelle had given away 50 for running into the protected zone. And you're thinking at that point, oh gosh, so much good has happened for the Crows these first few rounds with their young guns. They've led a comeback here. They're within one and wait, he missed? It's not over? Okay, but then after all that, Port's able to clear it and Adelaide in their own half of the field with 15 seconds left, right? So at that point, you're probably thinking, all right, crisis averted, Port's going to hang on. And then out of all of that, Lachlan Murphy goes for Mark, Sam Mays, who played a phenomenal game, 
gets called for a dangerous tackle. And Murphy's injured, though it turned out not seriously in the aftermath, but he was definitely in a state where he wasn't going to be able to kick this thing. That was not, you know, some sort of like, I'm going to fake an injury so that we can get a better kick here. Port fans beg to differ, but Murphy also does have a history, I believe, with neck and just upper area injuries like that in general. So it makes sense that they'd be extra cautious with that. But instead, the free kick went to the nearest player to him, I believe. They called it correctly. Unlike a couple years ago with Jack Noons for Carlton, yes, I'm still complaining about that. And yes, Docker fans still should too. But here, they called it correctly. Jordan Dawson, who came home and the Crows outbid Port for him, he takes the free in Murphy's place. Off the boot, you're thinking, oh, wow, they've really crumbed it. You thought he missed. You didn't think until it came back and went through that they were actually going to win this game. If you had not just, you know, a win expectancy chart mathematically, but just from an observer's perspective, considering score, considering the flow of the game, considering emotion, everything, other than maybe a couple minutes in the first quarter, it was very heavily on Port Adelaide's side. And then once they got the clearance, despite the boke miss, you thought they were in great shape. And then... Again, over the course of Dawson's kick, for about the first two-thirds of the kick, it looks like it's going wide, and then it somehow came back. The Anthony Hudson yell on that was completely warranted, and I'm still in disbelief, even though I made that edit with My Heart Will Go On and timed it way better than the AFL Instagram did, by the way. If you want to talk about turnaround performances from the first two rounds, hello, Elliot Himmelberg, and hello, Lachlan Gallant. We were plenty critical of both of them. Himmelberg, the first two rounds, Gallant, the second. But four goals for each of them may have just cemented their place in the Crows' 22 for the entire campaign. Gallant, maybe his struggles the week before were more a positive reflection on Darcy Moore's defending than anything. I still think... I still think it would have made a lot of sense to have Riley Phil Thorpe in there. I think they need to find a way to accommodate him. And that's going to become even tougher with Taylor Walker eligible to return after his suspension into round four. This one really hurts for Port Adelaide because it's not only a game where you felt like you had it won. They actually looked like the better team for a lot of the game. And I think the biggest reason for that was Mitch Georgiatis finally showing that he didn't just have to lean on Charlie Dixon to do his part. Georgiatis kicked two goals. Todd Marshall had five, a much better outing from him after kicking just one goal the first two rounds. This was just a tremendous game with emotional swings and so many back and forths. And for even the final kick to have an emotional swing to it, I think says a lot. There were so many iconic moments, you know, if, Port Adelaide wins this game. You're seeing Martin Frederick do the gritty 50 times. In his first action of the year, too, he was subbed on for Sam Skinner at three-quarter time. And at that point, he had as many goals as his twin brother for the season. We'll get to Michael's performance at the end of the round. But at that point, it was an 18-point lead for Port. And then you're thinking, all right, the sub is on. We saw from another game this round just how much a sub can do with fresh legs alone. And had it not been for Galant's quick response and probably also Elliot Hillberg's two after that to get a career high four goals himself, 
Roderick really could have had the dagger in this one without a prompt response. It was so interesting to see which players were contributing, which players were struggling. You noted Riley O'Brien with his 45 hitouts and nine tackles for the Crows. Meanwhile, for Port Adelaide, Ollie Wines, Travis Boak, and Carl Amon. I thought they were fine, but I didn't think they were great. And when you're missing Alir Alir and when you're missing Charlie Dixon, I think those guys are going to be asked to be more than just good. And they weren't. They were good. They were not take over the entire game elite. The one real issue that I saw for the Crows is that Darcy Fogarty has not been the accurate longer kick that we've come to expect him to be thus far in the season. And I'm wondering if the best move for the Crows is to omit him this next round and have Taylor Walker come in there. They have no shortage of quality players up front. It's just that back line that still is such an issue. Although Brody Smith and Luke Brown had their moments, but they're going to maybe have to move a good player further back in order to keep their best players out there rather than just keep their best at each position out there. Maybe playing someone out of position could end up being what leads to success for them, although you're probably looking more long-term than short-term if you're where the Crows are, so maybe that wouldn't necessarily be advisable. I think they're faced with some interesting decisions in the coming weeks. One of the big takeaways I have with Port Adelaide is that it seems like their luck for the past couple years is finally beginning to even out and it's a kind of luck that stings because the prior two years home and away 2020 and 2021 they were 11 and 0 in games within three goals thus far in 2022 they are already 0 and 2 in order to win a tight game you need to have some guys step up and you look at these things you know it's not one play that decided this game this game was not solely decided by Mays making a dirty hit and Dawson with the kick after the siren. There were so many events that led up to that being kind of the fulcrum. And there were three guys who I thought really disappointed for Port Adelaide. Zach Butters was pretty much silent. Sam Powell Pepper was non-existent after being really the only bright spot in that otherwise awful game against Hawthorne. And I thought Connor Rosie wasn't very good either. Finished with just 14 disposals and one behind. Reminder, Butters and Rosie are the two that signed two-year extensions before this campaign, so you thought that maybe they'd be motivated to keep up their form to get something going before their next deals run out, but not looking great early on for them or the list management. Or for Ken Hankley, for that matter. You look through social media and look, after any loss, any close loss especially, Coach is going to come under a lot of fire, but structurally, there's just been something that's been off about them that I'm sure if we had a more well-versed Port Adelaide fan on for, we'd be able to get into further. But one of his quotes was really interesting. Sounds like he doesn't really have control of the locker room right now, saying it's too early for the players not to believe. It's too early for them not to own their position and turn up to work hard. That was pretty revealing i think and i'm curious what that means for them chemistry wise moving forward and that perfectly leads into our first meter of the night welcome back the are you screwedometer ethan you said that your opinion on port was really going to sour with a loss in this one by any magnitude where do you have them after showdown 51 
considering that they were the dominant team for all but the last few minutes. But finding out that Charlie Dixon's going to be out for at least another month really puts them in a spot where this team that they have right now is basically going to be what they've got for a while. And that seems like a team that's just been half a beat off in some regard or another. That said, I really do think that sitting Jeremy Finlayson is a really good move as a wake-up call. And I think seeing a good performance out of Mitch Georgiatis is something to build off. And I'm just curious to see how they respond. They're obviously in a must-win spot now against Melbourne, which is not a great spot to be in. And they got the Blues after that. But that said, despite losing to two teams that could be wooden spoon contenders, or at least were assumed to be when this thing got started, I'm still going to only put it at a seven because you're seeing signs of a team that's starting to figure it out and really rebounded from rock bottom in a lot of ways. And if you had told me before the round that they were going to lose, I would have said, oh man, they're done. But after looking at how it happened and that they just needed to hammer a few things out to the point where that's a comfortable lead and they aren't in risk of giving it up in the final minutes, I think they're all right. But I'm concerned with this coaching staff, if this coaching staff is the right fit, because they're not seeming to be able to capture things and seize the momentum and take advantage when they have opportunities. They've just been oddly disjointed and nowhere near as smooth as we've come to expect the last couple of years. Reminder that these meters are out of 10, 10 being the most intense, as in they're completely fucked. I'm actually going to go a grade higher, Ethan, and put them at an eight just because of what's looming on the horizon for them. And that is an 0-5 start in my book. They've got Thursday night at home against Melbourne, but the way Melbourne started, I am very fearful for Port Adelaide, especially with the depth of their forward line, which honestly seems to be not talked about nearly enough. And then Carlton is able to run all over the place. And even with as talented a midfield group as they have, including Robbie Gray, who hopefully will be out of protocol for next round, or if not that by round five, even with that, how strong their midfield group is, that group's getting older. Robbie Gray is 34. Travis Boak is 33. And when you're up against younger midfield guns like Matraka, Oliver, Brayshaw for Melbourne, Mike Cripps, Walsh, Chera for Carlton, I really don't see much positive coming out of those matchups. And to add that onto the mounting issues in terms of coaching, I just think that Port might be out of things before we know it. We also have our newest measurement this week, the aloe black test, and Adelaide is going to be the first one to get measured with it. Now, the aloe black test is for teams that kind of fall in between the scrutometer and the legitometer. And in his song, The Man, he asks the all-important question. Is you really real or is you really fake? So... We're going to pose that question for a few teams, including the Crows. Benjamin, what do you think? Is Adelaide really real or is Adelaide really fake? The Crows are a Jordan Dawson miss away from 0-3, but also a Heath Chapman smother away from 2-1. and And they're also a team that can get some wildly different results between home and away. I'm not sold on them yet. 
They have a lot of good in their youth. We actually didn't talk about them much tonight because they weren't as much the focus. And really, we talked negatively about Rochelle from the 50 that he gave up. But other than that, they didn't actively hurt the Crows in any way, shape, or form. I think right now, this is the weakest really fake that you can get. But like Essendon, these next couple weeks for them are going to be a really good proving ground for them. They have Essendon next round. That's a Sunday afternoon showdown. So Saturday night in the U.S. And then they have and then they have Richmond the next week and the Bulldogs and Giants and Blues after that. It doesn't get any easier for the Crows. So I'm going to wait on saying they're really real until we can see a couple results, especially away from Adelaide. I am going to say that at home, they're really real. Outside of the Adelaide Oval, they're really fake. Their road results have been abysmal for the last couple of years. Other than really, I can just think of one memorable win in Cairns against St. Kilda with the crazy Philthorpe goal. And other than that, more often than not, they're not just losing on the road. They're getting absolutely bludgeoned. So until I see them actually do something on the road, I think they're really fake. But I think they're a sneaky, tough team. They've got a lot of talent up front, and you got to outscore them, which Port Adelaide was doing for the better part of the game, because you know that this forward group can score, and that's even before Taylor Walker gets introduced. By the way, I do want to mention, you touched on Rochelle. You can tell just by the way teammates interact with him, they really like him. He's going to be a valuable part of that group for a while. Moving on to Saturday footy or Friday night, if you're watching from the United States, we have the expansion extravaganza and spoiler alert, we get to break out the aloe black test on both these teams. GWS before a nearly empty giant stadium and honestly looked like a COVID crowd, I think under 5,000 tickets sold. 4,014, it is the lowest crowded giant stadium without COVID restrictions. And we'll talk about why. That may have been in just a bit, but the Giants did get home by 26 points, 12-11-83 to the Suns, 8-9-57. And remember, it was not that close. The Suns scored the final 26, so they cut the lead in half. It was 83-31. to After failing to come up with a goal despite dominating possession in the first five minutes, they then got three in the next three and a half minutes and led 21-0. They led 27-0 before the Suns could finally do anything. It was 34-3 at one point. Before halftime, the lead was 52-17. to This was a blowout. And I think a large part of that is some of the success that the Giants had in limiting Tuke Miller. It took Lockie Ash and Matt DeBoer trading off to do it. But really, you can see how much the Suns are reliant on Miller through the midfield, even with Matt Rowell also being there. First off, credit to Tuke Miller for being a player that you need to have fresh legs on at all times. Miller was limited to just two behinds, 17 disposals, and 275 meters gained. Meanwhile, Matt Rowell, who you thought might really get a chance to prove his worth with Miller being so heavily tagged, only managed 18 disposals and 141 meters gained himself. Braden Fiorini was the most active for the Suns, I'd say. He had 25 disposals, like Rao 11 contested, but the Giants managed to contain one player and a crippled Gold Coast, which is a major warning sign. And second, credit to Leon Cameron for doing a good job in that, and also for 
realizing he needed to get Tom Green out of the rock and play him forward. Tom Green with two goals, 29 disposals and seven clearances, 597 meters gained. A pretty solid all-around performance for him. The only positives for the Suns really came after this game had been long decided. Mabi Orchol got three late goals. He had actually looked really tired at the start of the second half and then picked it back up a bit. And a three-goal performance for Levi Casbolt, who frankly just didn't really have a spot at Carlton. Can't really blame the Blues for letting him go considering how loaded they are up front. But it was a nice find for the Suns, and they've clearly given him a second life, and he's repaying them with strong performances in the forward 50. But the rest of the ground, not so good for the Suns. This was the kind of performance that you'd come to expect from just looking at the names in the Giants lineup. Tim Taranto with 36 disposals at nearly 64% efficiency, a goal there, seven inside 50s to boot, eight tackles. He was really everywhere and maybe more everywhere than Stephen Canelia, who had 32 himself at even higher efficiency, nearly 72%. Canelio did only kick three behinds, but through him and Callan Ward as well, the Giants pushed the pace as we both hoped they would. They didn't get to, you know, triple digits, and that was a product of just some inaccurate kicking. It was also the product of kind of letting their foot off the gas late once they had gone up by 52, which is acceptable and understandable. But this was the speed that we wanted to see from them. The biggest thing that I noticed in terms of where the Giants were getting the speed was down the wings. And I'm not sure if that was the Suns' defensive dearth playing a role or if just that's a place where the Giants may continue to find success. And yes, they kicked somewhat inaccurately, but Harry Himmelberg had three goals. Jesse Hogan had two. So those forward names definitely reemerging. And we mentioned the attendance earlier. Again, 4,014, the lowest a giant stadium without restrictions. I think there are a few factors in that. I know that New South Wales has had perhaps the roughest time with COVID out of any Australian state at There may be just some lingering trepidation from the public regarding that. These are also the two smallest fan bases, the Giants and the Suns. Didn't really see any crowd shots of Suns fans on their few goals. Shocker. It seemed like the Suns had a much better showing on the road in Perth than they did in Sydney, which makes very little sense. I think just the other thing is both teams had had losses the week prior, even though Gold Coast was nothing to be ashamed of. The real issue for that would obviously be for the home fans not showing. And after the Giants started 0-2 with a couple key outs in Toby Greenstone being suspended and Phil Davis facing a lengthy amount of time on the sidelines with his hamstring tear, I can get why they weren't so keen to show. But hopefully we'll start to see some bigger crowds for the big, big sound. Their next home game is in Canberra, or just outside it, Anzac weekend round six against St. Kilda. And because of the scheduling, they're actually not back at Giants Stadium until round 10 for the Sir Doug Nichols round against the Eagles. On the positives, even though Leon Cameron's contract is not secure past this season and James Hurd, of all people, may be looming over his shoulder, this was Cameron's 100th win, and there's plenty to be happy about for the Giants. They were Damn convincing in this one after being certainly far from that the first couple weeks in certain aspects. So I think it's time to break out the aloe black meter for them. Ethan, 
are the greater Western Sydney Giants really real or really fake? Are the greater Western Sydney Giants really real or really fake? I think that answers itself. There is no answer to this. It changes every week. And I can never tell you if they're really real or really fake because every day they could look completely different to me. It kind of makes sense when you see it that way, which I think is damn accurate, that Leon Cameron's contract is up in the air after this. They have the depth in the forward two-thirds to wreak a bunch of havoc, but Stephen Canelio has spent the past couple of years not being spectacular like he's expected to be, not just as a captain, but just considering his ability. He's got a really high ceiling as a player, but also a low floor. And despite a couple of good names in their back lines, their defense, by and large, has been deplorable. The Giants' success is predicated on staying out of their back half as much as possible. And that's only possible when they put in some really good tagging efforts on star players and when they're able to consistently use their speed through the midfield through their advantage. That said, it does create a fun style to watch, which is a reason fans should be showing up. But you never know what. But it's not the most reliable way to do business. It's not a recipe that you can count on every week. We're also giving the Suns the aloe black test. Benjamin, why don't you go first on this one? Are the Gold Coast Suns really real or really fake? The Gold Coast Suns are really fake, especially considering who their win came up against. They go through one player, despite the second having seemingly been nearly as important those first couple rounds. That's only because he was given opportunities through the other. That first player, of course, being Miller, the second being Raul. They have some good things going forward, but when the midfield is bottled up, they can't get to it. And any team with a couple competent midfielders and defenders should be able to match them. The Eagles, of course, were without Tim Kelly that first round. Liam Ryan was out. Just a COVID clusterfuck to start their season that was less prominent this week for them, but was prominent enough that the first two rounds against them should nearly be discounted. I fully agree that they are fake. And I say that because it just looks like the same shit as most years. They'll play a decent game and then just get absolutely blown off the field the next week. It seems like they're a team that I've watched get blown out more than almost any other. And it just doesn't seem like there's any sort of upward movement. It's just they are what they are. And it's a shame because that midfield group is pretty incredible and is just kind of being wasted. And I don't know how much of this is on Stuart Dew. I don't know how much of this is on list management. I don't know how much of this is on players just not performing. But it's unfortunate because this is a group that I think really could have done something pretty special. And unfortunately, they're nowhere near doing that. Isaac Rankin was still out, which is an important note. And of course, Ben King is not in his entire season. Chole and Casbolt were, again, bright spots going forward. But there's just not enough there altogether. And it is a shame. I just expect things to go from bad to worse for the Suns next week when they host Carlton. I think they're a team that, similar to the Crows, you really want to face them at home. And unlike the Crows, I think there are fewer surprises where, you know, Josh Rochelle kind of came out of nowhere for the Crows. I don't think anyone's really been that surprising other than, I guess, maybe Levi Casbolt for the Suns. It's just kind of 
this is what they are. And it's just underwhelming because, again, this had the potential to be a pretty fun team. And it's just it just hasn't been there. And I know it's just three weeks. But when you consider the context, the past history of this team, you just wonder, is it ever going to get better? Or is this just kind of it? Is this just who they are? And are they ever going to have decent crowds themselves, too? Because despite the way they started the season, their round two crowd at Metricon was quite disappointing. They didn't even crack 10,000 for that. 82-80. And is this the second failed experiment to keep a team on the Gold Coast for the AFL? Remember, the Brisbane Bears started there in the late 80s and the mid-90s. I'm wondering at this point, might the Suns be the best side to move toward Tassie? And on that uplifting note, it's time for Ethan to go through his absolute roller coaster that was the striped skirmish between Collingwood and Geelong. The big story of going into this game, of course, was Joel Selwood breaking the game's captain record with his 227th game captaining the Cats, breaking Steve Kernahan's record from Carlton. Selwood did end up factoring into this, perhaps not on the scoreboard, but in terms of just morale more than anything. But Ethan will take us through that because he's the Cats fan here. Cats played a garbage first quarter. We're lucky to get out of it down 10. Collingwood couldn't kick straight. They were at 3-7 after a quarter and 4-11 at the half. Cats went into halftime up five despite playing miserably bad until the last few minutes of the second quarter. And then they come out to start the third looking great. Tom Hawkins gets a quick goal, and you're thinking, all right, Cats are in control. Here we go. And then the floodgates just completely opened, and all of a sudden, Collingwood kick a nine-goal third quarter. They've got the home crowd of the G absolutely roaring. Nick Dacos is playing great. There's no answer for Jamie Elliott or Brody Majacek. Reef McInnes looking really solid in his debut without Nathan Kruger out there. McInnes filled the role really well and kind of played more of a midfield position. Cats absolutely lose control, giving up back-to-back goals on threes that at this point make it a 30-to-1 run for the Pies, where Tom Atkins just tackled Jack Ginevan when nothing was going on, and he ended up with a free kick out of it. Some Collingwood fans thought Selwood had done something dirty, but no, it was Atkins. And a little bit of Mark Blitzovs, who I thought had actually been playing pretty well. He was one of the few guys who had played well until the fourth quarter in which the Caps all of a sudden just completely flipped the game. It was at the end of a tackle where someone was getting up and it looked to some like he was putting Gidevin in a bit of a chokehold. I thought that it was quite minor, but... Again, you can chalk some of this up potentially to Arjalong's sympathies and my distaste for Collingwood. I didn't think it was much, but Ginevin is a player that very early on in his career has shown the ability to be very good at getting under people's skin, whether that be on the field like Tom Atkins or off the field like Kane Corns. I thought, regardless of how severe it was, I don't know if it was necessarily worth giving them a second free kick right there, but it was stupid and it was unnecessary. It got worse. It turned into a 53-1 to run where Jagoe, Elliott, and Majacek were dominating. Jack Henry was just playing an awful game, and it makes you really wonder why is Mark O'Connor playing in the VFL for the second straight week? Finally, Max Holmes, who I thought was pretty poor early in this one and just was getting out-muscled, finally did something, cut the lead to 78-53. It looked like there was absolutely no hope for the Cats at this point. They went into the fourth trailing 90 to 60, and then all of a sudden, 
Three quick goals by Duncan, Blitzovs, and Cameron. Cameron scores again after reading Jeremy Howe and getting behind him to make it 90 to 84. And at this point, really, the guys who really turned it on to me, Tom Stewart recovered from having his power sucked away by the Monstars, like in Space Jam. Selwood started to play better after really struggling early. Mitch Duncan was playing better up until his goal. He had been having a pretty poor night. Obviously, Jeremy Cameron was taking over, but I think the biggest factors were Luke Dollhouse, who came on as the injury sub and was just phenomenal, and Brad Close. Just like Nick Blakey for the Swans, Close is a guy where once he touches the ball, something good happens. And it shows you how poorly the rest of the team played against Sydney because he was a standout performer that night, but nobody else was. Anyway, get the ball in Brad Close's hands and good things happen. Finally, after stupidly trying to bomb it into the forward 50 and win marking contests against much more physical players, much stronger players. The Cats finally came to their senses, realized they needed to attack through the middle, a mix of running and short passing. Brad Close was all over that. And then he ended up off of a nice little gritty play by both Tyson Stengel and Sam DeConing, who got off to a shaky start but settled in. Close tied it at 90 with nine minutes left. Dullhouse did look excellent as the medical sub, but it actually led some people to suggest that the medical sub could be so much of an advantage that once one team activates theirs, the other team should be able to activate theirs as well to get the fresh legs on at the same time and even things out. That's an interesting conversation in itself. And other than that moment there in the middle of the fourth, Stengel was really making round one look like an anomaly. I'm ready for Brian Myers to be back in there. Ready for Myers, ready for Mark O'Connor. Unfortunately, as good as Jack Henry was last year, he looked awful, which is unfortunate against his brother. You know, the last two weeks, he got a chance to deprive Buddy Franklin and thousands of fans of their moment. He didn't do that. Got a chance to play really well against your brother. Didn't do that. I think Still got the win, though. I think it's very clear that he and Sean Higgins are really the weak links right now. I don't know why Higgins was even back in there. He was abysmal. That said, despite all of this, despite a stupid game tactically until the fourth, despite keeping quality players in the VFL for a second straight week of rehab assignments, not just Myers and O'Connor, but also Sam Managola and John Seglar, they had managed to tie it with nine minutes left and Steel Sidebottom was dealing with injuries. Luke Dollhouse put the Cats up with a behind with 5.09 left. Jamie Elliott got one to tie it after being paid a mark that I guess in hindsight he shouldn't have. In real time, I didn't notice, maybe just because of all the adrenaline. Hawkins settles for a behind that gives the Cats the lead with 2.25 to go. And then Jeremy Cameron put it away with a minute 25 left. With his sixth of the night and fourth of the quarter, the Cats ended up kicking the final eight goals of the game as Hawkins got the last one. It was a seven goals to zero, 44 to one, fourth quarter and all for the Cats. Just an incredible performance after looking awful for the first three. And I think there's a lot to take away, both positive and negative for both teams. What did you see from your more neutral standpoint? The through you, the Cats are sort of like a second team because I like seeing the teams that you like do well, but I think that Steel Sidebottom dealing with injury really derailed a lot of good things for the Pies. Even at his age, he is still someone that Collingwood really relies on all throughout the ground, and he was a big factor against the Crows, and I think it was apparent just how important he is. Meanwhile, I was 
so pleased that Jeremy Cameron was able to step up. Apparently, he said at three-quarter time, give it to me, and he delivered on that and then some. And I am also extremely glad that Jamie Elliott being paid that mark despite Zach Tui touching it did not end up being a factor. No one likes when the umpires end up providing the end result. And the Cats learned that last year on the good end, once and on the bad end, the other. A few points to take away for me. You knew Cameron and Hawkins would bounce back after combining to kick 0-5 against the Swans. And they did. No surprise there. But it was another weak game for Cam Guthrie, and they managed to overcome it. He's been quiet the first three weeks. It was an okay game for Dangerfield. He was really struggling early and then settled in some, but I still think there's more you can see out of him and Mitch Duncan. I thought Parfit had a few moments, but I really think as the Cats hopefully realize, and my concern is that the coaching staff doesn't realize it and doesn't adapt, that this direct attacking mode, this speed-focused mode, instead of just trying to win marking contests where they get these quick kicks up the middle, and go and run and get out into open space and push teams in the forward 50 and really in the forward half altogether to create space for guys like Hawkins and Cameron to take open marks instead of have to just win the physical ones. I think that all flows through close and perfect. And I think there needs to be a philosophical shift to realize that Cam Guthrie is a very good physical player. But when you get things running, I think that's when you really have to give everything to close and perfect and then they can set things up for Hawkins, Cameron, and the other forwards. I was really impressed as Brad Close got going. Meanwhile, for Collingwood, they were struggling keeping up that pace for a greater length of time. I think they were putting it through the right people, but they just ended up lacking the stamina for it. And once DeLong finally came to their senses, it was too much for them to maneuver around. And another big factor was Darcy Moore getting tired late. We mentioned... With Lachlan Gallant's success in Showdown 51, that Moore may have been a big factor there. And he was likely a big factor in Jeremy Cameron only having two goals up to three-quarter time. But damn, it's hard to cover someone like that for a whole game. I thought, and remember, this is coming from me, the Cats man, that Jordan Degoe's dump and tackle on Dangerfield was not worth a suspension. Maybe a fine at most. I thought this was really not the sort of play that they need to be so concerned with. From John Ralph, he was talking about how the league is focusing on head contact a lot and intent is more important than result. But I do think medium impact, that designation is BS considering. Dangerfield was completely unfazed by it. He bounced right back up and played the rest of the game. I do like the idea of focusing less on the consequences of the play and more the intent, because I don't think whether a player was injured should factor into how a play is evaluated. A lot of times that's just luck, hitting the right spot on the ground, how someone lands. I think intent does matter more than the result. This isn't some Hammurabi's code eye for an eye shit. I also don't think, though, that the intent was as great as the league is making it out to be. The other thing, and it was the same matter that nearly cost the Bulldogs, Collingwood kicked like shit in the first quarter and it caught up to them. Geelong was really lucky to be within 10 after a quarter. If you look at the expected score, which is a great metric that is available on Twitter through these guys at AFL Lab, 
Yes, their Twitter handle is at AFLXScore. When Jeremy Cameron's goal late in the second quarter cut the Collingwood lead to 35-34, the expected score was still 50-27 to in favor of Collingwood, which really shows you how much they pissed away in the first quarter. When Nick Dacos had a behind on a shot that goes for a goal 55% of the time, the expected score was 50-21, to and the actual score was... 35 to 28. That said, Dacos did get his first goal, and it was a pretty nice one at that. You can see just why the scouts and coaches and everyone involved with the AFL is so obsessed with this guy. For him to be doing what he's doing as a 19-year-old is incredible. He looks like a seasoned veteran, and he's only going to get better. It's scary to think what's ahead with him. Yes, Nick Dacos gets attention because of his pedigree, who his dad and his brother are. But as shown by his play this week, which deservedly earned him the Rising Star nomination, he's getting attention more than anything now for his abilities. McGinnis with 14 disposals in his first game. I was pretty impressed with him. He did not look like this was his first time playing in the AFL. And not only that, to do it in a high-level marquee game, Saturday night, national broadcast at the G. Clearly the nerves and the magnitude of the situation didn't get to him at all. There didn't seem to be any sort of transition period for him. He was just ready to go from the start. And I think even in defeat, there is a lot for Collingwood to be satisfied with. And he's another 19-year-old which makes it all the more impressive that he looked so composed. That being said, the main takeaway for Collingwood should be some sort of mix of figuring out how to pace yourselves for four quarters against a top team like Geelong, as well as it's pretty clear, despite the loss, they can run with the best of them. I came away from this game pretty impressed with Collingwood, considering that they dominated the game for the better part of three quarters. That one that they didn't dominate, though, was pretty fatal. From a Geelong standpoint, I'm curious to hear what you have to say, but I think that fourth quarter was the similar style to what they did against Essendon. And while I understand that you might not be able to go full throttle for the full two-hour game, I think they need to do it a lot more than they did. Just bombing it in and going for these marking contests doesn't work unless you're facing a really weak defense or you don't think you can run through the midfield because you're facing such a skilled one. And I think Geelong's midfield can run with just about anybody. So there are only a couple teams I think can give enough resistance that they shouldn't do that. And again, some of the list management. Sam DeConing redeemed himself late, but Tyson Stengel is rough around the edges. I think the potential is still sky high with him. But I think what we saw in round one was more of a glimpse of what to come than what he is now. Sean Higgins has just been bad. And Jack Henry, I think, could use a couple weeks to get himself right mentally. I still think Jack Henry's a good player with a really bright future. Just the last couple weeks, he's been pretty bad. My biggest concern for the Cats is that Chris Scott and company don't take heed to the obvious signs from this contest because, let's face it, they often don't. And what could be a game that really writes the ship for the year could just as easily be a one-off occurrence. This game was a great illustration of what works for the Cats and what doesn't. Can the coaching staff look at this, make the very obvious tweaks needed, and take this thing to even greater heights? I'm skeptical about it. But the blueprint is there. The evidence is there. It's time to actually make things happen with this. 
it's time to see just how good of a coach Chris Scott is, considering he was given such a great side that won the flag in his first year. And it's time for him to really make one for himself. Before we move on, Collingwood got the legitometer treatment last week, and I think it's fair to give it to them again, even in defeat. So, Ethan, you said you were impressed by Collingwood. Going on our 10-point scale, how legit do you think they are? Three rounds in. Despite the loss, I think I gave them a 7 last week. I'm going to actually bump it up to an 8 because, again, they were the better team for the first quarter, most of the second quarter, and all but a couple minutes of the third quarter. I do think that they have a ceiling. I don't think they're a top four team or anything like that. And I think it's going to be tough for them to beat a top four team, as evidenced by Darcy Moore not being able to run for the entire game with Jeremy Cameron. And I'm curious to see how they plan to work with that, who they would use to spell him, just like how GWS rotated two different guys on Tuke Miller. That same sort of mentality might be needed. But I like what Craig McRae is doing with them. I think the style they play fits the talent they have. And they look like a finals caliber team right now, even with this loss. I think I had them at a six last week. I'm going to bump them up one like you did. I'm going to bump them up one as well to a seven. Reef McGinnis playing as well as he did definitely is coloring my favorable perspective of them. It's good to see that there's more in their young crop than just their top pick. The concern with not having someone to really relieve Darcy Moore could definitely be a factor in keeping Collingwood away from what could be some really convincing wins otherwise. I'm also just wondering, you know, how capable they are of keeping up the the pace that they want to play at. It was clear that they lost some steam late all around the Oval. And when they still have a largely older group, it may not be optimal over the course of an entire season to keep playing that way. I could definitely see them in the 2023 finals. As for 2022, I'm not convinced yet. Pretty long-winded about that one. No surprise, given Ethan's Cats fandom. Thankfully, we don't have nearly as much to say about this next contest because it was hardly a contest. Brisbane Lions, 23-18-156, easily dispatching North Melbourne, 7-6-48. I was a little excited going in to just see what North Melbourne had without Davies Uniac and Thomas. I thought it was an opportunity for some fresh faces to prove themselves, and that did not happen at all because the Ruse ended up surrendering 80 or close to 80 points off turnovers and Really, there were hardly any positives for them. I didn't watch much of this one. I had it on in the background while I had the Cats game on the main screen. Just consider the fact that if Brisbane had kicked even better, they could have been pushing for 200 points. Specifically, if Charlie Cameron had kicked better because he ended up kicking 2-6 despite kicking a ridiculous first goal. He could not make it happen on set shots, especially on snaps. And to add to that, he dropped two Mark of the Year contenders. So he could have had a career-type game, and you could see his frustration. He was active and good on the ground, but just couldn't finish. And he's got so much going for him that I hope he can stay out of his own head and be able to soldier ahead. Considering how North struggled last week with basically a VFL team and that they were playing without Taron Thomas... This isn't all that surprising, but still, 
to have a 108 point margin that could have been even worse is not a good reflection. You want to at least compete. I don't think anyone was expecting North to keep this game close, but if they could have at least hung around for a quarter in the second quarter, maybe only gone into half down, I don't know, 20 or so, I think this could have been much more respectable instead. This is the sort of game that makes you think they still have a really, really long way to go before relevance. It was nice to see Jaden Stevenson get involved in Todd Goldstein's goal on the run, which is an oddity in itself to have a Ruckman other than Max gone scoring like that. I'd say that's a positive seeing Stevenson being back like that. And Aaron Hall kept up his activity, but despite doing well in clearances, especially in the first half, Brisbane was far more efficient on theirs. And really, there was nothing as I turned off my stream that made me think, wow, there's something good for North here. And that is even more the case when you consider their injury concerns, chiefly Ben McKay being helped off after colliding with Josh Walker during a mark attempt. He was subbed out for Aiden Bonner. I did really like David Noble's postgame quotes, just straight up saying we should be embarrassed. And as he's already shown by omitting Jaden Stevenson, I think a little bit too early for the record, although it seemed to have gotten the desired effect because Stevenson was something of a bright spot. He's shown that nobody's invincible, which I like on a team that's mostly young, a team that's in a deep rebuild, isn't anywhere near the finals. You know, there's no need to protect egos. Why not just go out there and make guys prove that they belong. I mean, Cameron Zerhar with just 11 disposals and one behind, really lousy game from him. The other guy you can't entirely fault is Nick Larkey, who got bludgeoned a couple times. And despite the ruse not getting too many chances in the forward 50, he still ended up with two goals and a behind. But this was bad. And I'm curious to see how David Noble chooses to respond to this. I'm hoping that Jack Zebel isn't invincible either, despite his 18 disposals. It was clearly a step back for him. Yes, I'm advocating for two captains to be dropped for round four between Zebel and Dyson Heppel for the Bombers. Meanwhile, for the Lions, this was a team win. I don't think I've ever seen any sort of evenness in the stats like this before. You know, not ridiculous evenness, but the fact that all 22 of the Lions that were playing had between 11 and 29 disposals is remarkable. And everyone other than Lockie Neal in the midfield was stepping up for them this time. Jared Lyons, talk about a fitting name, had two goals and 28 disposals at 71%, had 12 score involvements, nine inside 50s. Cuba Kluggage had eight involvements at eight inside 50s. He had 29 disposals. Dane Zorko might technically be a halfback now, but he's a midfielder in halfback's clothing. 28 possessions at close to an 80% clip for him. Zach Bailey, the highest scoring midfielder with four. I mentioned a couple of times that he could really be the future for the Lions and seeing his ability to score out of the middle. Yes, against North, but still seeing that on display this early in his career is something that the Lions can really potentially build around as their core gets older. Going forward, Lincoln McCarthy grabbing a handful of goals was great. It was nice to see that there wasn't just one mix scene making waves there. And then Joe Danaher had three. 
Joe Danaher also had three. The Lions ended up having six multi-goal scores. So they shared the wealth all game, and really mostly everything went right for them other than Cameron's struggles and also Oscar McInerney's suspension, which looms large going into their next matchup. I'm not just saying this because of any bias, but watching the play, it was a stupid, reckless, and unnecessary play, and it is definitely a deserved suspension. Moving on to Sunday, or Saturday night turning into early Sunday morning in the United States, Carlton 11-8-74 over Hawthorne 11-7-73. A one-point win for the Blues, but not all close games are created equal, and this one certainly wasn't looking like it was going to be a close game for a while. Blues got out to a 43-9 lead after a quarter. They were up by 30 at the half, led by as much as 41 at one point in the second quarter. And then the Hawks came storming back. Hawthorne ended up getting it down to 17 by the end of the third, even took the brief lead in the fourth. They led by a single point, 67-66, behind a chain of intercept marks and finally generating the counterattacks that they had wanted to after a Jack Gunston goal. And sure enough, that quick counterattacking had done it. If you look on the match timeline, it said Hawks had scored 39 to Carlton's 13 on chain starting their defensive half. And that was a really good reflection on Sam Mitchell and the entire coaching staff for being able to counter Carlton's adjustments, get back to doing what they wanted to do, and holding the Blues to just two goals for the entire second half. Carlton only scored 15 points in the final two quarters. So well done by Hawthorne despite the outcome. Carlton did end up taking the lead back on a Silvani goal, and they went up by seven on a behind with 5.36 to go. Gunston did get a goal to cut the lead back to one, but Doherty and Mackay had huge marks with about two minutes left. And then Jacob Wiedering had a really nice mark in front of James Sicily with 43 seconds left that sealed the win before an excellent crowd. After Collingwood and Geelong drew 52,000 the night before, this one drew 66,000. The best two crowds this year have been for Carlton games, so there's a whole lot of excitement around the Michael Voss era, and their early results are going to keep that up. I think Voss has simplified things in a really nice way for him, and it's really allowing the Blues to play to their strengths. Most importantly for them, they got out to the advantage they did because they were clean in the first half, and they just didn't let the Hawks counterattack. It was clear that they were laboring starting around the end of the second quarter a little bit, and really in the third quarter, and that's when Chakwath Joff asserted himself once again. He ought to get votes for this one, maybe even two of them. But at the end of the day, when you get eight goals between Charlie Curnow, Jack Silvani, and Harry Mackay, that's a winning recipe for the Blues. And Sam Doherty ended up being awarded the David Parkin Medal for Best on Ground. 33 disposals at 87.9%, which is ridiculous with that work rate. 13 marks at nine intercepts, and a very active game for George Hewitt as well. Ethan, I know you've really liked him thus far this season. He does so many little things right. He's such a smart heads-up player. And that's nice for the coaches because they don't have to think all that much with him. They can turn their attention elsewhere because they know they can trust Hewitt. Hewitt had 11 contested possessions out of his 28 disposals and nine tackles and nine clearances to boot. And 
at nearly four-fifths efficiency, he was a big part of that cleanliness for the Blues that really drove their success in the first half. Carlton kind of simplifying things brings me back to a point that I've made throughout the NCAA tournament. By the way, Duke lost, America won. If you're an Australian and don't know who to root for, I highly recommend not Duke and not Gonzaga. You're probably rooting for St. Mary's if you follow teams on the West Coast at all. You should turn your attention to USF, but I have nothing but respect for St. Mary's. Anyway, with college basketball coaches, a lot of times in NCAA tournament games, they need to underthink it. Sometimes it's as simple as get the ball to your best players and let them go to work. And with the Blues, they've simply underthought things and it's worked well. It's as simple as we're really big and strong. Let's play to our forwards. Let's win some marking contests against guys who aren't as strong as we are. And let's kick a crap load of goals. And speaking of Jaff, I thought he had a really nice game strategically, but it was a tough matchup for him because considering how wiry he is, you know, similar build to most South Sudanese players, he was just outmatched dealing with guys like Harry Mackay. And he was getting good position, but a lot of times he wasn't able to win those contests just because he was facing someone who was bigger. And that's not a knock on Jaff. It's more just they need other guys to step up. Despite the Blues being a bad matchup for Jaff, he still put up 10 intercepts and six score involvements. He was everywhere once the Hawks were finally able to get those counterattacks going. I know you were really impressed with James Sicily and Denver Granger Varas had a good second half as well. Hawthorne just needs more from a personnel standpoint. But the way they adjusted and the way they made this a game... I really like what Sam Mitchell and his staff are doing so far. I think it's one thing to have a style and show this is how we're going to play and this is how we can beat a more talented team like they did against Port Adelaide. I think getting knocked down early and being able to make it a game, unlike the Suns and a few other teams, that really showed a lot to me. It showed the ability to make in-game adjustments and be able to counter what Carlton's coaches were doing so that the Hawks were able to play their style again. And I find myself very impressed with them, even in defeat. I still don't think they're that good, but I think they're well-coached enough to never really be an easy out. Maybe they have one or two games against a top-four team where they just don't play well, and their opponent plays very well, and it's not close. But I don't think this is a team that's going to get blown out too often, considering the resiliency they showed and their ability to adjust. I like what's ahead for them. I don't think they're a finals team or anything close to it, but I think they're a tough out. They can keep games tight. And when you keep a game tight, you're just a couple plays, a couple of opposition mistakes away from winning it. And they're going to fuck up somebody's season. Who knows? Maybe when it's all said and done, we'll have realized that they fucked up Port Adelaide's season. I think it's fair after a game like this where really neither team deserved to lose it. Carlton only ended up getting the edge when they were finally able to get even numbers in their forward 50 again at the end. I think it's fair to break out the legitometer for both teams. And let's start with Hawthorne and defeat. How legit are the Hawks? You alluded to the fact that you didn't think that they were that great of a team, but that they're pesky. So where does that put them on our legitometer for you? I think it puts them around a three. I think I gave them like a four last week. I'm going to knock this down to a three, but I think more than anything, this game is less of a reflection on their players and more of a positive endorsement for Sam Mitchell and his coaching staff. 
because of their ability to adjust. They seem to really know their team's ins and outs, their strengths and weaknesses. And I think this bodes well for them moving forward. I think they may end up losing a fair amount of close games because they simply don't have the horses. But I like what they did overall. And while I don't think they're going to be a team that's in the finals conversation, they're very much a team that can give anyone a tough game. And I think they can expose some weaknesses. I think they exposed some weaknesses in Carlton by really slowing them down in the second half. And I'm excited to see how future opponents try to exploit that with Carlton. I'm going I'm to stick with four for Hawthorne, as I believe I gave them last time. It's hard for me to figure that I should bring them down when I already didn't think ridiculously highly of them going in despite their placement high on the ladder. I think their peskiness early on, which I just think is a very good word to describe them, is going to serve them well in the long run once they get a couple bigger bodies back. Ben McAvoy being out, I think, was a big factor in them not being able to close things down and have more of a presence right up front. We'll see how long it takes Big Boy to get back after a minor neck fracture. Sure, minor is the adjective for that, but nothing with the neck is an easy thing to return from. Meanwhile, the Victorious Blues are also a team that's looking more legit, but also more legit in the moment rather than maybe in the long run. It was great seeing Chera and Walsh out there for the first time together. And as scary as it is, what is just one of them with Patrick Cripps, having them both along with what they have going forward with the size of Mackay and Kurnow and also Silvani. I just think that this is about as scary as a forward half as you can find throughout the competition, especially given their speed. I'm going to give them a mid-range 7 on the Legitometer. I'm not sure if they're going to be able to keep up this simpler style and keep the success with it for the long run, but their schedule going forward is pretty favorable, Ethan. Yes, I'm also giving them a 7 because they may not face a real top-flight team for a while. They face the Suns away next week, then they host Port Adelaide. Who knows what those two teams will give you. They do have a trip to Fremantle in round six, I think is really intriguing. And then after that, it's North and Adelaide, then the mystery of GWS. And then round 10, they host the Swans. That's when it gets good. You've got the Swans and Collingwood in back-to-back weeks. I think it may be a while before we tell just where the ceiling is for this team. I'm curious how coaches are going to adjust to them in the next few weeks, especially when you get up towards round nine and see what Leon Cameron chooses to throw at them. because. Like we've said, they have this simple style. It plays to their talents. It's worked so far, but Hawthorne did a lot to slow it in the second half. And I'm curious if to counter it, it's as simple as slow them down, or if it's a matter of how you rotate guys, how to try to limit Mackay and some of the others. That said, they still held on and won, and they did it with a pretty thin defense. Remember, you're playing without Adam Sod. You're playing without Mitch McGovern. You're playing without Oscar McDonald. So maybe it was fitting that one of the few mainstays that was playing towards the back for them, Jacob Wiedering, was the one who made the play that all but put this one to bed. You want to talk about a contest with even less defense? Look at the next game between St. Kilda and Richmond, which overlapped with this one by an hour at the end, which is a shame because it was also a really exciting one. It was an absolute shootout. St. Kilda 18-9, 117 
taking down Richmond 13-6-84. With that final scoreline, you might not think it was all that much just looking at it in the aftermath, but it was an exhilarating watch. It was a really fast-paced contest, and honestly, defenders need not apply. This game could be split into three phases. First, you had this insane first quarter with goals back and forth. 30 seconds in, Richmond had scored twice with a Shea Bolton goal from the center square. Teams combined for 12 goals in the first quarter. Richmond led 40 to 38. And then the Tigers really started to take control. They led by 13 at half, looked pretty dominant in doing so, led by as much as 25 in the third, and then St. Kilda woke up. Saints cut it to four by the end of the third. They trailed 78-53. Richmond did not score again until a meaningless goal with 10 seconds left by Shea Bolton. In that time, St. Kilda scored 10 straight goals, 64 straight points in all, to turn this from what was a fun game that Richmond had the upper hand in to an absolute massacre, just a complete ass-kicking by the Saints, who once again really shut me up after... I had really doubted them. I'm especially surprised that this was such a high-scoring game, considering how physical both these teams are, rather than being more speed-based. But I'm impressed, and I'm impressed with what Brett Ratton's doing, because I still don't think he's got a great roster there, but Patty Ryder's return certainly helps, and the Saints made Richmond look surprisingly undisciplined. This was definitely a first I had ever seen from Richmond, where they were so undisciplined. The fact that the Saints did what they did to close this out without Jack Higgins, who was concussed in the mid to late first quarter after a Hugo Ralph Smith tackle from behind, which, by the way, was clean, it seemed, is what makes it all the more impressive. And it also solidifies my belief that as Max King goes, so go the Saints. He started 0-2 and then kicked four goals in the fourth quarter. He wasn't perfect in the fourth. He shouldn't have played on with just under seven minutes left and had a full-on miss after that. But when he's confident, when he's kicking at his best, and at his best, he's a damn good kick all over the forward half. He had one from right on 50. When he's on, the Saints are on with him. Alongside King, there was a Jack that stepped up in Jack Steele. Eight inside 50s were definitely a reflection of his forward shift in the second half. He had 32 disposals, 12 of them contested at 75%, a game leading 582 meters gained. When you got one or two of the Jacks going alongside King, that's a real positive sign, as is when Brad Crouch is able to have as much of an impact as he did with. 15 contested possessions out of his 29, 11 clearances, and 9 tackles. This is a three-vote game for Brad Crouch in my eyes. I was very amused by every look into the coach's box as Richmond disintegrated, just seeing Hardwick's various reactions because he kind of puts it all out there. He's really entertaining. I've seen games where the Tigers have lost. I've seen games where the Tigers have been outplayed. I don't think I've seen one where the Tigers just fell apart at the seams like this. Again, so undisciplined, so out of focus. It was bizarre. Also, where was Ivan Soldo? He finished the game. He played nearly 60% of the game and had five disposals. I was really shocked that they didn't 
get more momentum from that massive Toby Nankervis bump. I think a lot of that came from Tom Lynch not being able to score on the end of that. Exactly how I saw it. Tom Lynch never seems to have the easiest time on the shots that seem makeable and then can do some extraordinary things otherwise, almost like Charlie Cameron was this round for the Lions. But Lynch is another one of those guys that can be a really good barometer for whole team performance. And when he isn't able to get things going, the Tigers often can't either, even with Shea Bolton being his electrifying self and Marlon Pickett having his moments before neutralizing that in some respects with his push on Dan Butler that ended up putting things within a goal. Both these teams are going to get the aloe black test. First off, St. Kilda, Benjamin. As crazy as it is for me to say this, just with how low I was on St. Kilda at the start, thinking, man, these guys could really end up with the spoon. The Saints are really real to me after this one, and it's what I've spoken about earlier in terms of Max King finding his groove, and he's done that in a couple games despite not being a big factor outside of a couple quarters, but when he finds his groove even for a little bit, he can do some great things, and doing what they did without Jack Higgins for most of the game is a really positive reflection on their ability to adjust. Like you, Ethan, I'm not super high on Brett Ratton, who, in contrast to Damian Hardwick, hardly shows emotion. And I think that the Saints' ceiling isn't high, but I think that they can definitely be a team that cracks the eight if things do break for them and if their key pieces, Max and the Jacks, are able to keep things together. And aside from Max of the Jacks, the really real rating for me partially comes with Patty Ryder's return. As impactful and as skilled as some Ruckman are, it's hard to see any Ruckman mattering more to a team than Patty Ryder does because when he's in, it allows Rowan Marshall to go more forward, and that's what suits him. And despite just coming off an injury stretch and being 34 years old, Patty Ryder is still an above-average ruck, and he ended up winning the hitouts, and St. Kilda ended up winning the clearances. They didn't win those stats by much, but they won them. And to do that against Toby Nankervis and a Tigers team that can definitely be a problem out of the middle with their speed, especially through Bolton, is no small feat. I was really impressed with Jade Gresham. They've had some pieces that I really didn't think that much of before this year that have looked really good so far. And I am also going to say, yes, St. Kilda is really real, which I really wasn't believing in. But in fairness, they were a finals team just a couple of years ago. They won a final a couple of years ago, that elimination final against the Bulldogs. And they look the part right now. I still think they're behind some teams in things like speed, but their physicality is a problem. And when Max King gets going, they are really tough to stop. The thing is, he's just one player. But as tall as he is, it's tough to keep the ball out of his hands. He's great at winning those contests when they just bomb it in and wait for him to mark. Just a matter of him kicking straight. When he does, they go on some crazy runs. And I really didn't see them as a team that could go on such crazy runs. So that's something that really has taken me by surprise in these first couple of weeks. As for Richmond, how do you gauge them after a really uncharacteristic performance? I have 
confidence in the Tigers structurally, given what they've been able to do the past few years, and given some of their youth, especially Hugo Ralph-Smith, who, who I know you tweeted earlier, is someone you think already belongs in the 22-under-22 team. I still believe in Richmond's ability to right the ship internally during this season. The big question mark for them is, of course, Dustin Martin's status, when he's going to return, if at all. If he's back, they are more than really real. I think for now they are barely really real. I think these next couple of contests are going to be an indication of the team's internal strength overall, especially if Dusty remains out. They got the Bulldogs next, and then they go to the Adelaide Oval. And then they've got the Demons. So this is going to be a pretty telling stretch. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I say, yes, they are real, but even if they were to lose two of these next three games, I will stick by that so long as they don't just collapse like they did against St. Kilda. It's one thing if they get outplayed. You know, the fourth quarter Carlton played was just tremendous. It was less Richmond losing and more Carlton winning. This game was a combination of St. Kilda winning and Richmond losing. Still, that's two solid performances out of three, even if only one of those solid performances led to a win. I still trust in the Tigers overall, but certainly it's going to be less a matter of if they win and more a matter of how they look over these next three games. I also wanted to touch on some comments by Damian Hardwick. He came out against some of the close contact rules that the Victorian government have in place. The AFL came out and said, this doesn't speak for us, which I get why they needed to specify this is him personally, but I'm totally in agreement with Demma. There is no need for contact tracing stuff in a situation where everyone's vaccinated and every player in the AFL is vaccinated. So this is just overkill. And with people vaccinated and with less severe variants of the virus going around, you do not need to contact race. You can treat it like a pretty normal illness where you get sick, you stay home for a few days, come back when you're better. And hopefully the Australian government can realize that and get up to speed because as we've seen with how it's been handled in America, you, know, you look at things from a trial and error standpoint, when you've reached this point with people being vaccinated at such a high rate and with less severe variants going around, we can treat this like any other illness. So considering the circumstances, Damian Hardwick is 100% right. I fell asleep before the end of games twice this round. One of them was a big mistake. The other was not. As much of an Eagles fan as I am, I also was considering falling asleep before the end of this one. The Eagles recorded their lowest ever score in a Western Derby. 7-5-47 to Fremantle, 15-12-102. I think the way that both of us see the Eagles after this one could be summed up by the legendary Chelsea Football Club supporter, Angry Rantman. There is no passion, there is no vision, there is no aggression, there is no fucking mindset in this football club. Nothing is there. Homer Simpson also explained it pretty well. I've seen teams suck before, but they were the suckiest bunch of sucks that ever sucked. It was as bad as the score looked. They did not score in the second quarter. Fremantle outscored them 26-0 to zero in the second. The Dockers went into the half up 42-8. to eight. And other than a brief flash early in the third, 
it never really got any better. I actually disagree with you, Ethan. I think the score sugarcoats some things, and I think the Eagles were maybe even more disappointing than the Kangaroos were this round. They had 13 points right at the end of things where it looked like they were just desperate to not go down as the lowest scoring West Coast side in the Derby. And I'm thankful that Jack Darling had the behind on that last one instead of a goal because this performance merited that notorious distinction. It is pretty nice to say that for a rivalry that's gone on for a couple decades, 47 is your lowest score. But for it to happen with an aging but very decorated group of players like this is a really harsh reality check. Jeremy McGovern had 15 intercepts. Shannon Hearn had 13. And had they not been reading kicks so well, along with Alex Witherden to an extent, he had eight. Had they not been able to read kicks so well, despite none of them being close to perfect, this game could easily have been as ugly on the scoreboard as Brisbane versus North Melbourne was. The first thing I said about the Western Derby as a contest was beginning was that the Eagles need to take advantage of Nick Nadanui's prowess in hitouts. He ended up winning those handily. He had 34 hitouts. The Eagles won the hitouts 40 to 19, and it was all for naught. Frio won the clearances 36 to 29. They were 24 to 16, the Dockers, on stoppage clearances. And aside from those couple goals to open the third quarter that we alluded to already, the first from Jack Petrocelli, I thought, wow, this could really be a chance for him to have an impact, but nothing after that. And then Nanui himself, other than that, they got nothing out of the clearances where I thought Sean Darcy being out of Nanui being Nanui was really the one chance the Eagles had to be productive. They also were abysmal in terms of capitalizing on turnovers. They scored 1-3 on turnovers, West Coast. Meanwhile, Frio, 11-7-73. That's what you should be doing. And the efficiency ratings say everything you need to know, especially the efficiency inside 50. Frio, 54.5%. That's a bit above average for them. West Coast, 39.1%. This ended up looking like an easy time for the Dockers, and that's because no one really got in their way. I've had such high expectations for the Dockers, and they looked the part this time. And I'm just excited for what they could do moving forward because I want them to be entertaining. I thought they were so bland for a while. I think right now they're an entertaining group, and I'm excited to see them really get tested against better teams in the coming weeks. It was good seeing Michael Frederick be impactful early. He had his first ever multi-goal game. Was happy to see Matt Tabiner make an immediate impact. He got the first goal and added another one later. Was also encouraging to see Michael Walters finally get on the board. I left this game more than anything impressed by the midfield for Frio. We already mentioned Frederick, who was a pretty forward-playing mid and active on the ground, as he should be. I'm glad that... Jamie Graham realized that he was used poorly last week. Speaking of close contacts, Jamie Graham was the caretaker coach for the Dockers because Justin Longmuir was in protocol. And Graham is actually the first person to win as a coach for both Western Australia teams. He was a caretaker for his old side as a player and as an assistant coach, the Eagles, in 2018. So 
hey, Dockers fans, the last time Jamie Graham won a game, his side won the flag that year. Three other names because they were all impressive. Andrew Brayshaw remained busy and remained and ended up being much more productive this week than last, I'd say. 26 disposals, 11 score involvements, a team high 507 meters gained. I'd been waiting to see something from Blake Akers, and then he had over 80% efficiency with 22 disposals, 10 marks, 8 involvements, 7 intercepts at a goal. And Lockie Schultz ended up getting the Glendinning Allen medal for best on ground with two goals, nine score involvements, and 23 possessions at 74%. So the Dockers midfield was firing on all cylinders, dot, 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 against the West Coast Eagles. And I'm not convinced by this performance for them, despite everything they accomplished, just because of who they played. Sure, the Eagles had a lot of familiar faces back, but it's not like those faces did anything. Their next four rounds are hosting the Giants, at the Bombers, hosting the Blues, and at the Cats. And at that point, we're really going to be able to see what the Dockers can do when they're up against anything that resembles a team that might be in finals contention. I'm really excited to see how Leon Cameron tries to match up with them and what he prioritizes, because I think especially with the way star players have kind of been in and out so far for Frio, it's been tough to get a read on them. So I'm excited to see what Leon Cameron perceives. I kind of want to watch this game this coming week from his perspective. And I think we'll learn a lot by watching with that angle in mind. And I didn't even mention that the Dockers were without Nat Fife, who's out for a reasonable length of time with his persisting back issues, or David Bundy, who was out in protocol for the second straight week. So you add Bundy, even at his age, being as productive as he was last year, you add Bundy to that midfield mix, and it might get even scarier. So I am really circling that Dockers-Giants game as a chance for both teams to really prove their worth. But we'll talk more about that next episode with our round four preview. Before we go, though, it's time to give one last aloe black test, and it's for the Dockers. Ethan, I assume you're saying the Dockers are really real? Yes, I believe so. I thought a lot of guys who disappointed last week returned and played much better. Bailey Banfield embraced the sub role really well. The smaller forwards played better. It wasn't just Rory Law. This was a complete and dominant performance, and it was a chance to see just what these guys are made of. Michael Frederick bounced back. It was just a better game for Fremantle altogether. And I think this was a game that was close to their ceiling. And I don't know how often they're going to be able to get to that degree. But I think it's clear that these guys are really good. And yes, they are, in fact, really real. I'm not as high on them as you are. I think they are real, especially with their win over Adelaide looking a bit better. But they were sloppy at times in that one, and I want them to have you know a really solid out-of-state win before I am real confident with them. And I'm also interested to see what Justin Longmere does when he comes back, hopefully, for this Giants clash next week. I assume that he was in frequent conversation with Jamie Graham about the game plan, and if so, then he clearly learned what Michael Frederick's role should be. And that's very much a positive. I do think Frio have a capability of being a finals team this year. And 
and not just seventh or eighth in that. I could definitely see them hosting an elimination final. I'm just wanting to see more from them against another finals team before I can really be happy with them. And when I say happy, I'm just talking about as a straight up fan of Australian rules football as a sport. It hurts to see the Eagles. It hurts for me as an Eagles fan to see them get embarrassed like this, but I honestly saw it coming. And it was good seeing the Dockers perform as they should. A quick glimpse ahead of the four games that are being played on Saturday, this being Saturday in Australia, so Friday night to early Saturday morning in the U.S., the two most intriguing by far are going up against each other at the exact same time, that Fremantle GWS game and Richmond against the Bulldogs at the MCG, which are the two most interesting games from ladder standpoint, a talent standpoint, and I really think a coaching standpoint. Because again, I want to see what Leon Cameron does after he did such a good job sizing up the Suns. One last parting shot about and really at the Eagles is... Where is their viability coming from these next several years? Josh Kennedy and Shannon Hearn are 34. Nick Namnui, Luke Shuey, with whom I share a birthday, and Jack Redden are 31. Meanwhile, Jeremy McGovern joins them in their 30s in under two weeks, and Jack Darling and Andrew Gaff in a couple months. Yes, they were without Willie Rioli. Yes, they were without... Oscar Round and Tim Kelly, but none of those are on the super young side either. And there are really some large scale list issues for the Eagles going into these next few years as that premiership core fades into retirement that I think are going to take a full scale rebuild to solve. It's all the injury fun of the 2021 Baltimore Ravens and all of the aging fun of the last few years of San Jose Sharks hockey. All together. And with us being Ravens and Sharks fans, it's perfect that I'm a fan of the West Coast Eagles with the way they're currently going. All right, before we go, goal of the week, I think there's a clear winner here. We've got Charlie Cameron's crumb followed by his kick from the sharp angle. We've got Ed Langdon from the impossible angle and Nick Natanui from 50 off of a center bounce, which sure seems like a we just needed a third. So here's the third. But I think Ed Langdon's a clear winner on this one. Benjamin, what say you? I think Langdon as well. Yes, I was watching the Cameron one live and was impressed by it in the moment, but Langdon's was from a tougher angle. And even though he might not have moved as much getting into it, I think the quality of that kick alone merits the goal of the week honors. For Mark of the Week, I think all these are pretty legitimate. We've got the Tim English intercept over Buddy Franklin from the Thursday night contest. Trent McKenzie on Lachlan Gallant during Showdown 51. Again, just really happy to see McKenzie out there doing well, despite how scary his opening round injury looked. Thankfully, it was just a hyperextension of that knee. And then Jeremy McGovern with one of his many intercepts over Harry Edwards. What made the McGovern one interesting was that he basically jumped his own teammate to do it. What's your pick here? Because I really can't decide between English and McGovern. I actually do have a clear winner for Mark of the Week, and it's Jeremy McGovern with a height he got. And like you said, Ethan, the fact that he got it over his teammate, which is definitely a rarer way to get those. Yeah, I think I'd give McGovern the slight edge. I don't think any of these are going to be really in the conversation at the end of the year, whereas that Langdon goal could be up there. 
One last takeaway from each of us. Ethan, go ahead with yours first. My other takeaway from this round is how much fun it is to see so many shots that kind of bend back late. Because a lot of times, you know, kicks from a straight angle, you can tell pretty quickly whether they're going in or not. The added suspense, obviously on the Jordan Dawson one, but on so many of these others as well, it looked like they're going to miss and then come back in or look like they're going in and then miss at the last second. It's super fun. And I hope that keeps up. I like the showmanship. And also just the technicality of being able to manage those kicks. Admittedly, Dawson did not kick that well. I don't think he meant for it to do that at all. My takeaway starts from disappointment in terms of scheduling. I was really disappointed with Showdown 51 overlapping with Melbourne and Essendon starting an hour apart. I thought before the game, and I think it even more with how it wound up, Showdown and really all the in-state rivalries outside Victoria, even if they're of lesser quality, merit at least one Friday primetime slot during the season. It's a slot that gets good ratings, and if a couple of those other out-of-state teams manage to be on the rise... Looking at you, sons. And looking at you, Giants. I think those could be great opportunities to... I think those could be great opportunities to get the game to grow even more, especially in New South Wales and Queensland, where rugby is still dominant. I think even with American audiences, even though right now there's a lack of a TV deal, I think people are intrigued when they hear about a local rivalry, even if they know nothing about the city. You know, you show them it's Adelaide versus Port Adelaide. People will turn to that just like people with no knowledge of soccer would be interested in seeing Manchester United versus Manchester City or Inter Milan versus AC Milan because it's a local rivalry. Bottom line, rivalries are good for the sport and they ought to get time slots that merit all the lead up to them and the intensity in those games. At least Q Clash gets Saturday night all to itself. Again, looking at you, Suns, in round six. As always, you can find us on Twitter at American Spuddy. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K, K A S S E L M E D I A. And you can find Brian Harambe on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. I am at Benjamin HK01 on Twitter. Once again, this has been Americans Watching the Footy, and we would love for you to interact with us on those social media platforms. We may sound like we know a lot about this game, but this is just our third season watching, and face it, we're dumb Americans, so be willing to call us out when you think we're wrong. Be willing to say when we're right, too, I guess. I don't know. Have fun with it. We're having fun with it. You should, too. And we'll see you in just a couple days for our round four preview.